Welcome to Casa de Cambio. I'm your host, Natasha, and with me today, I have Daryl Sagrove, Head of Product and Portfolio Management at Australia Post, a former colleague of mine twice, and all-round super guy, and dad of two. Welcome. Thank you very much, Natasha. I'm so excited to have you here. Me too. <laughs> so today, Daryl's going to be talking to us about managing up and managing change at an executive level, getting decisions and working with people who are very time poor and getting their attention. So I think we'll start off, what are you reading? What are you watching? Uh, any podcasts you're listening to? Sure. Um, well, on the last point, the podcast I'm listening to at the moment is to do with um, running. I'm a runner mm-hmm. and I've been Did you just do a marathon on the weekend? I did do a marathon on the weekend. Congratulations. Thank you. My second. And um, yeah, I've been listening to a podcast to learn and, and share experiences of other people who are running. And I really enjoy this particular podcast called Marathon Training Academy. And the husband and wife do this great, um, great conversation around all sorts of topics to do with being healthy and, and running and enjoying it. So yeah, I'm doing that. Um, I'm not really watching much telly lately. Really? Um, I actually, I'm lying. I, I got roped into The Bachelor. Is it The Bachelorette, the one that's on now? With I think the girl it's the, from Google. Yeah, that's The yeah. Bachelorette that's on now. Gogglebox, sorry, yeah. I'm watching that. You enjoying it? Yeah, my wife and I decided that we needed to watch some trashy TV and so that became it. Yeah, everybody's got their trashy TV that they love and people mm. love The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. I, I don't, don't watch know. it but I know everything that happens because it's just ev- all <sighs> everyone talks about and it's all over social media. I know. Don't judge me. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> no, there's no judgment at Casa de Cambio. Um, so the Marathon Training Academy, I'll put that in the show notes so when this goes live, people can check that out. Um, I actually have been watching Kath and Kim because it's on Netflix and mm. I feel like half of Australia is re-watching it and just I falling in love. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I you watch- said you weren't watching anything and now you're watching Kath and Kim as well. Well, I watch bits and pieces of yeah. other things. That was one thing I did. I watched about three episodes of Kath and Kim in the last maybe month. Yeah. Yep. Hilarious. And you're just like, oh, my God, this is the funniest show. I forgot how so funny, funny it was and all the puns. And now they've got the movies up there. So I've watched one of the movies. It's the best. And it's so funny. Um, and I finished another one called on Stan called Murder in the Bayou. So it's a crime series about, you know, women who get murdered and no one does anything about it. And it's lots I of, yeah. saw that one too. Oh, my God. Have you, have you seen it? No, I haven't watched it, no, but I saw it. Highly recommend mm, it, but no. you'll be shaking your head and just going, oh, another thing where the police didn't do anything and, you know, no one's caring about, oh, another body's turned up and another woman's been murdered. God help us. Well, it's in, it's in the US, but it's got all the things I love. It's like creepy scenery, you know, a weird town that's full of drug addicts, prostitution, <laughs> murder. Right like you, can't, alley, you couldn't even it? script it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything you're reading? Um, I read some really nerdy stuff like about astronomy. <gasps> really? Yes, I read things lately. I've been reading a lot of astronomy books um, about space, about space travel, about universe are you going to go to space when elon musk makes that possible maybe maybe Mm. you're just going to wait and see how it goes if i had the like i don't know 
$200 million or whatever you needed to be on the first flight. It might do it, but I don't at the moment. Oh, well, this is a hypothetical though. So, <laughs> no, that's cool. My dad's super into astronomy, so mm. that's cool. Awesome. Um, moving on to career stuff, what is the best piece of career advice you've ever received or a good piece of advice you remember receiving? Mm, that is a really good question. Um, oh, look, I think it's actually life advice not just for career but, you know, treat others how you want to be treated mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think has probably served me better than any other advice I've had in my career. Mm-hmm. And that also reflects on how I think about change as well, which I know is something we're going to probably talk about. Yeah, because you <clears throat> want to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Very much. And therefore think, well, if I was, you know, having this impact um, – inflicted or <laughs> put on me how would I want people to go about treating me totally absolutely that empathy exactly right and so or funnily enough on empathy advice I've given to others about recruiting people mm-hmm. my number one recruitment criteria is the demonstration of empathy yeah right and how would you as someone who's hiring how would you go about looking for that in an interview scenario through challenge questions on how they address problems, mm-hmm. and um, and it's quite obvious in how people answer um, specific questions around how they address a problem, deal with an issue, um, overcome challenges. That people who are empathetic usually start with a thought process that says, "Well." First, I tried to put myself in the other person's shoes, or first, I oh tried God, to. I never say that in world. interviews. <laughs> <laughs> you oh. probably wouldn't hire me if you met me. <laughs> <laughs> um, or I start with a customer, or I mm. care about you know um, the experience that other people around me are having, or you know, there's less I in the answers, mm. and there's more we, and there's more the customer and the employee and the staff member, and yep. right. That's a great tip. Thank you for sharing that. Um, So talking about, maybe let's talk a little bit for the listeners about your background. So you currently work at Australia Post, Mm -hmm. before that at Telstra, Mm -hmm. and you also had a really successful startup. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to talk about any of those experiences or? Um, Sure. I've had an interesting career. I don't think I could have predicted it from the beginning, but I don't know many of us do. No. Um, I started out as a health professional, an exercise physiologist, in fact, which maybe is why the marathon running thing's still kind of part of me. Um, <laughs> um, was a health professional. I actually specialised in working with lots of very old people who had chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. And I came up with a business idea during that phase of my career which I started on my own and grew to a medium-sized organisation and was very successful and and it was very difficult though. Um, it was an enormous learning curve in my career, very steep learning curve. I, I How old were you when you started up this business? I was probably around 24. Three, five. Yeah. So group. at that age, you're still kind of learning about general work stuff, like mm-hmm. how to work as a team and how to speak to people, and you know. So to be on that kind of a learning curve at that younger age, it would have been very steep. 
and how to run a business. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, I, I did things a bit back to front. I won a, a national, like, young business person of the year award type thing in the mm-hmm. early stage of the process, which emboldened me to, well, I must know something about business. Mm-hmm. I think I did, but I, I there was a lot I didn't know. And so I... Um, I started this business, I think I nearly went broke about seven times over the ten years that it existed, not because of um, it was not growing, it was growing too fast Mm. and I couldn't capitalise its growth and the costs were rising rapidly and it needed a lot of investment and so on and they were things I didn't know much about. So I had venture mm. capitalists, I had family, friends, and lots of people investing in this business, including myself, um, which raised the stakes and made it even more important that I succeeded. Didn't go broke, yeah. And um, and in the end, I um, my wife fortunately brought me to my senses and helped me to realise that I needed to do something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the answer was to sell the business, to get out of the business, to give it to a company that was able to grow it and invest in it where I didn't have that capital to do it. Mm-hmm. So I was very lucky. I sold the business um, and got out, you know, um, quite successfully and and then started another career which um, then became more in business. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I did that. Uh, Telstra was fascinating. Um, I was the GM of innovation and it – this is an area we work together, um, mm-hmm. in, and I really loved my time at Telstra. It was a, it was a, an incredibly rich experience with so much going on and so many things. And when I arrived at Telstra, it was such a good time when David Thody was there, and um, yeah, and Same. It was such a great you know focus on the customer. And yeah, and and work uh, the culture and work life balance and all of those things. It was. Very exciting. It was. And there was money. There was lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a very exciting time to be at Telstra. And um, and in, as a GM of innovation, I worked on such a wide range of different things, you yep. know, from smart home and IoT technologies to building retail outlets to, mm. you know, energy businesses to all sorts of things, you know. So it was a really fascinating and diverse range of activities to work on and now at Australia Post I feel a little bit the same Um, Australia Post is a fascinating business that most people know in Australia but um, what they don't maybe know as much of is is the range of things it does um, I didn't know until I started working there yeah Yeah. it's a great company it's fascinating all the things that they're doing it is it is so um, yes being part of the product and innovation group there is Equally is ex- interesting and exciting. Um, the e-commerce growth that's happening that Australia Post is riding the wave of is a enormously exciting and challenging um, growth business. And at the other end of the spectrum, they've got a declining letters business that mm. is equally as interesting um, and ch- and challenging, but for mm. different reasons. And, and it's so unique as well that letters business. It's mm. not like any other type of business in Australia, like. I mean, obviously there's mail services all over the world and they're all experiencing the same problem, but the way they have the community service obligation and the obligation to turn a profit and all of that sort of stuff makes it a really interesting situation. It is. It is. So, yeah, I love that job. And You look at a great CEO as well at Post. Yes. Yeah, very charismatic, engaging. Like I worked there for, I don't know, seven months Mm -hmm. and I think in that seven months – 
I saw her speak maybe four times at, you know, formal and informal events. Like I've never seen a CEO where you, they're so accessible mm-hmm. and so um, in front of their staff. Yep, she's driven a very um, positive, enthusiastic culture and, um, and it's refreshing and a great place to be and a good time to be there. And there's lots of change. Like every organisation, <laughs> um, there's no shortage of Not change. Not enough change managers though. I'm just going to put that out there. That is <laughs> Throw the a truth. little bit of shade at Post. Love the company, but you know. That is the truth. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of opportunity to manage change better, to lead change better in organisations of every, every organisation I've been in, in fact, you know, and no exceptions with big corporates like this. It's... Um, it's it's an enormously I'm I'm an advocate because I just think I've seen the benefits and I've been through you know um, programs that have been managed well in terms of change and those mm. that haven't I'm sure we all have mm. and I just have felt and seen and experienced you know that difference and have just become a evangelist really for <laughs> for change and tried to learn myself you know how yeah. I can be a better leader. Of of change personally, so you know it's always been a. Um, uh, what it is in recent years has been one of my focus areas for developing myself. Really. There's actually a new um, change leader course that's out there that I'm doing at the moment. It's called the Agile Change Leader Certificate. Um, so yeah, just give those guys mm. a shout out. It's run by Dr. Jen Fram and Lena Ross. So I'll put that in the show notes too because I'm halfway through, and it's putting a lot of theory. Um, into place behind practices that I use in the workplace but didn't really, you know, couldn't really quite put a name to. So I'm finding it really useful. So I'll flick those details over to you and, p- yeah, pop it in the notes. Good one. Because, yeah, it's j- I think it got released in August um, but it's specifically designed for managers and people leading change who want to know about how they can do it better. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so in your job I've seen you, you use the word evangelise. I've seen you evangelise a lot about innovation and you know growth and strategy and things like that and you seem to me to have this amazing skill of bringing people on a journey getting them on board and getting them to say oh my god what do we need to do to make this happen what do you need and getting the things that you need to make it happen and I'm sure you'll turn around and say oh it's not that easy you make it look really easy and it's something that I feel like and maybe this isn't some the way I'm perceived by others, but I feel like I struggle with that because I'm like, oh, it's so obvious what we need to do is X. Why can't everybody see that? So I would love to hear how do you go about getting the decision you want from a senior executive who might not be an advocate or might be not, might not be on board with what you're trying to do? It's a good question. I think, um, yeah, look, I... I Agree that um, it's an area that I haven't had. Um, I mean, most people would say, "Oh, it's just so hard," or "You just can't get decisions off people." I don't have that problem. So, what? What is it that you do that makes you not have that problem? Um, Share. Well, and it's not to say that I, you know, it's it's always easy or Mm. um, that it can't be a problem. 
or that I've always had it my way is not mm. the issue. But I think getting a decision doesn't necessarily mean you always get the decision that you want. Yeah, um, true. But but even getting a decision is an achievement in itself. Yeah. You know, so to me, getting a decision um, in my work, I realise that and everyone realises that we don't have the authority to make all decisions. Mm. But I see my role as being able to facilitate um, good decisions, even if those decisions I don't always agree with, and I'm comfortable with that. But at mm. least it, it and then you know what you need to do, and we can move on, and you know, exactly. decide on the next thing. Exactly. So you know, in, in similar context in innovation, you know, they say don't fall in love with your, with your ideas. You know, sometimes you have got to not fall in love with the decision that you think you want, mm. um, and that somehow um, releases you a little bit. You know, from this. Um, uh, sometimes a an unnecessary attachment to the idea that it has to be a certain way, mm. you know, and you stop looking at options and you stop looking at uh, alternatives and you and you start av- avoiding seeking a decision from the people that really need to make it, and and so you know I see those behaviours in in other people, and as a result they don't get a decision and or they try and avoid to do something without needing a decision or avoid the requirement of a decision, all sorts of things, whereas in fact I don't work like that. You mm-hmm. know, I tend to think, okay, um, I'd, I've got an idea mm. or I'm bringing an idea forward. Some Someone has a good idea and I can help facilitate a decision on it. And, you know, but I don't get myself attached to that idea. I spend a lot of time with people thinking about how to structure the decision that we're making. In fact, today it was a good example. <clears throat> um, a team were asking for a very big decision. It's a decision on a half a billion dollar plus contract opportunity. Mm. And, you know, the decision that was requested mm. was essentially, in summary, please approve what I've written in this paper. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, that's not that's not a decision. <laughs> You know, um, because this paper's a story of things mm. um, and it isn't clear to me what about this content in this paper is actually this group is being asked to decide upon. Mm, okay. Um, and so, you know, one suggestion, you know, in terms of um, getting a decision is first being really, really, really extra clear about what the decision is that you're making yeah. and breaking the decision down into its component parts. It's not always just one decision like please approve X. It's often, well, I want you to note this. I want you to endorse that. I want you to approve this component and I, um, I want you to note, you know, the next steps. Maybe be aware of these risks. That's right. These things these. might happen. Exactly. They probably won't but, you know. But it's amazing how meetings change when the decision is framed appropriately up front. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, one um, one area that I think really helps is being clear on the decision that's being made. Um, the other one, I guess, that's that's you know you're sort of alluding to is 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 the style that I tend to find is successful in particularly working with senior people and not just my boss, but my boss boss. Yeah. Um, and. And I think for some reason people start behaving really um, awkwardly sometimes when they talk to senior people. Yeah. I don't know why that is. It's hierarchy. They get hierarchical when they get nervous. 
they get nervous, um, they get all weird, they start talking to them like they wouldn't talk to anybody else. Mm. And it's really obvious, you know, and even people, not as many people have done it with me, I, I don't think, but I've, I've experienced that myself, you know, where people Ooh, in teams... Did it make you or, feel important? You're like, oh, they're getting nervous. No, it makes me feel weird and this <laughs> is the thing. But every, every leader is different, I know. Some people love it, you know. They love being treated like Intimidating the people, or, yeah. So I think there's um, there's differences in, in in people in this regard. But on, on average, I've found a lot of success just treating senior people like human beings. Now, I know this sounds really basic, but I mean, you know, having a normal conversation with them. Mm, asking them about their weekend. Yes. Yeah. Like you would your normal colleague. Like you treat them like an equal, not treat them like somebody that is um, on some sort of pedestal yeah. or. Or somebody that you want something from as well. Like I um, had an experience when I first moved to Melbourne 11 years ago. I was working for Accenture and I was an analyst, so I was very junior. And everyone was just, you know, anytime they talked to a senior person, they were like, me, 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 I want a promotion. What about my promotion? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like I remember looking and thinking these people do not want to hear that when they're having a drink at, you know, 8 o'clock at some event. Um, so yeah, I would do that. I would just say, oh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Tash, I do this, blah, blah, blah. But I would never ask anything and yeah, ask them questions about their kids or, and I went to, I think it was an International Women's Day event and I had the opportunity to meet uh, the person who was the head of Accenture Australia at that time. And I talked to him for ages and I think <laughs> someone said, oh my God, what were you talking to him about? I said, well, I think I made a lot of dick jokes. He thought they were really funny. <laughs> and they were like, you did not. I'm like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> but he was like, oh. And my friend was there with me. These girls are hilarious. And, you know, I think that is a thing because everybody wants something from those people and that must get really annoying. Well, you make a really good point that um, in the higher you go up in the hierarchy, the more um, the requests come, I want this and I want that or you need to make mm. this happen. And it's, it's quite a demanding place to be when every single conversation is you've got to, mm. you know, make something happen or give, you know, as opposed to receive. Yep. And so, again, treating people as human beings is also about, you know, giving, not just receiving. And so, you know, I always think about what is it that I can do that will um, provide an, uh, some offer of information or support or or help or predict what they need or, you know, um, understand their perspective well enough that, that I can um, um, provide them the solution, not just the problem. You know, these sorts of things are ways of, of making leaders feel that, um, that they can help you without necessarily having to exert extreme amounts of effort and have to go about solving the problem and... Mm. and, and doing all of the tasks, you, you, you're really helping them in every way you possibly can to make it easy for them to make their decision as well. They are time poor and often in my case, my boss boss has paid a lot of money. Mm. Every minute that I spend with him is worth probably $1,000. I don't know, like a lot of money. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to be respectful of that. That doesn't oh, mean yeah. I treat him like a celebrity. I don't. I treat him like, mm. I, I treat him like any other colleague. I really do, you know, but I do – in saying that, I do also respect him, his authority and his time and I think that's the balance that you've got to try and strike. You know, I don't rock up to a meeting with him completely unprepared. You know, I would never, ever do that. 
But people do do that though. They do. Don't they? they yeah, do. right. It's it's funny how the simplest advice, I'm not, you know, saying, well, it, it is simple yet it's the most effective and it's really common sense advice. But yeah, when you actually say it like that, it's like, yeah, actually so many people rock up to meetings with no preparation and yet they're trying to ask for all this money. Like I got a story, I can't say who it's from because they haven't given me permission to talk about it. But um, someone had a meeting, you know, some dude rocked up to her office and was like, I want 100K to work on this idea. He had nothing, no business plan, like no figures, not even um, a sentence written down about it. And I was like, okay, A, I'm so shocked by the brashness and the confidence of which you would do that. And it obviously reflects, you know, the lack of understanding about how things get funded. But yeah, B, that this happens all the time and people do that and they think they're going to get the money and they get really surprised when people say no, but then sometimes they do get it. So I don't, mm. I don't know. Um, There's one other related thought about that. You know, again, getting a decision, sometimes people think too linearly and logically about how to influence somebody. So, for example, if I wanted to influence my boss boss, mm-hmm. who's an executive general manager, um, I don't always just go, oh, I'm going to take X request to my EGM and ask him for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've used principles that I learned actually many years ago from marketing, for example, um, things like it takes seven times to um, communicate in different modes and methods to get a message through to actually change someone's behaviour. Totally. And often the initial natural reaction is just to say no. Yep. Everybody does that. They, you say you throw an idea out there and they're like, no. And I do that and I'm a change manager. And then I think about it and I'm like, oh, that's actually a really good idea. I can't believe I said no. So, yeah, that's, that's another really good piece of advice. So using that method, I would never just go straight up and just go, you know, Boss, would you do this? I would think, okay, what's some ways that I can start planting some seeds in uh, around this person? I can communicate some things. I can share some information. I can provide a sly comment in the hallway. You know, I can start influencing people that influence him, um, including his EA, including you know, people within his team that I know he respects their views. Mm. I will start with them, you know, and and start talking to them about this idea or this decision or this thing I'm working on, which I often learn even more through that whole process about how to sharpen the request and sharpen the decision to the point that oftentimes, and this might sound, well, to you it won't sound weird, but to some it might, is that the decision often gets made before I even need to ask it. Wow. And that is an example of, you know, starting to think differently about how you get the outcome Mm. that you want without necessarily thinking so linearly and logically about how to get a decision made. And it sounds like um, not thinking about it in a way that's hierarchical and chain of command and one way and top down, but more like you've talked about influencing and circles of power and that's great. Well, yes, and but I think the hierarchy, you've got to work it to your advantage. You know, Mm. I think... I don't – whilst I'm not hierarchical if you want to define it in that way, like I treat everybody equally, I also respect the hierarchy in the sense that there are – we all have a role to play in an organisation and Mm. we all have certain levels of delegation and authority and that 
is the rule of law. Yeah. That's the stuff you've got to work with, not against. Yeah. Um, the other stuff, the informal and the influencing, you can work all sorts of other ways than just going through the strict delegation rule of law policy, you know, which is what most people default to. They say, oh, this decision is worth more than $50 million, then I X needs to, to, to X make it. I have to go to forum and I have to write a, this business case. And exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and they write the business case but they don't do all of that um, – background work of having the conversations and influencing people on the side so that when they get to that meeting, everyone's already ready to say yes. Exactly. And it becomes a box-ticking exercise. Well, um, interestingly, in my first in my business um, that I talked about before, um, there was a secret source that we used there which was very psychology-based in how we were um, treating people that had health conditions. And I've taken this into my later career – and it was essentially based on a very simple principle that people are much more likely to change their behaviour if it comes from them mm. rather than from you. Now, that sounds really basic, but what does it mean in practice? Well, in practice what it means is that if I've got, an idea, if I've got a thought that I think, you know, I really would like this person to um, make this decision or um, do something that I think will be good for our business – Instead of just starting with, um, hey, Joe, I think, would you like to do this thing for our business? <laughs> mm. um, the conversations that I have, both, well, not only conversations, but interactions, the many interactions with the circle that you talked about, as well as with the individual and other mechanisms, are all based on the premise of how do I get this person to say what I want them to say without me having to say it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do I plant the seed, provide some information, you know, share a related idea, give them an experience, you know, have somebody talk about this thing with them that's not me, all sorts of things, like anything that I can that's almost an indirect mechanism to um, trigger this, this same idea or this same outcome or decision without me having to overtly say it. Now, sometimes you get to the point where saying it actually helps to facilitate a bit of a speedier answer, but I mm. tend to try and avoid doing that for as long as I can. I find that so hard. I, I, I find it so hard to not just blurt out what I'm thinking or what I'm trying to do or, yeah, okay, but I'm, I'm going to take that on board. I'm going to really – although, again – other people not might not perceive me that way because sometimes when I feel like I want to blurt, that's just going on inside my head and I'm being quiet in a meeting or facilitating well. So I'd be interested to hear what others think. But, yeah, I I often feel like I just want to get cut straight to the chase. And I think it's also important to realise that what I said then is usually for bigger, more complicated things, not your basic things. Like you're not going to spend all day, you know, thinking just the ba- most basic or simple of tasks. You to know. approve my leave request. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not talking about that, right? We're talking yep. about complex, big and important Strategic changes. Strategic decisions that involve decisions. money and, and time and effort and yes. people and, yeah. Yep. So it's those things that are worth investing the thought and the strategy um, and the time into um, a process that will get the best outcome without necessarily just um, you know, jumping those early steps of, of engaging people properly and influencing them in different ways and changing people's thinking before you land them with this, you know, completely different concept. Yeah. 
And I guess when you get to that point where you're ready to present a concept to someone and ask for their input, you've probably been thinking about it for months and working on it for months. So if you just slap it in front of somebody and they've got no background context and no time, it is going to be so new to them, they're going to be on a completely different wavelength to you about it because they'll be receiving that information for the first time. Exactly. And you'll be like, yeah, the blah, blah, and, you know, because it's all you're just so in the detail of it. Nice. Um. And so I think the point that you made around talking to people who are in that executive's uh, circle of influence is a really good way of feeding information to someone who's time poor because then if they're spending time with their direct reports or people that they trust, then they can maybe get that information from those people rather than you relying on having to get time with that very busy executive. Do you have any other tips on how to grab the attention of someone who's very time poor? Mm-hmm. Um, look, I've found that um, time is a relative thing <laughs> <laughs> um, and it often is based on the level of priority or importance that they place on you and your thing. Yeah. You know? So on that basis, it often starts with trying to first work out how you can be more of a priority in their mm. scheme of things. Um, as opposed to, you know, constantly trying to come from a place of unknown and asking for stuff all the time. Yeah. So, you know, how do you do that? Well, I think, you know, to me my style and approach is is always to, you know, really try and engage people in ways they sometimes don't completely expect. You know, it's, it's again – Probably a bit of a marketing thing. I should have been a marketer, but um, <laughs> it is a bit of a marketing thing. You know, it's it's if you just if the way that you're trying to ask for stuff is I'm going to arrange a meeting, I'm going to sit in the room opposite in the table, and I'm going to go. You know, this this is the purpose of the meeting, and this is what I'm here to talk about, and this is the thing that I want to make a decision on, and rah 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 rah. That's what they hear all day long. Like yeah, all day long. It's like robotic. It is not. It's not going to jump out at them it's not going to stand out and it's mm-hmm. certainly not usually going to be the thing that's going to make them go this is really exciting interesting important whatever you know so i tend to try and take people a little bit if you can you know it's i know it's not always possible you know so it sounds nice in theory but i really do make every effort um to say for example if i've got something really important i wanted to talk to my egm about I'd rather do it in a stand-up and put images, you know, on the wall and tell more of a story of how things are happening and why it's happening. And I know my particular EGM, I know that not all the same. Everyone's different. Every leader's different. But mm. in my case, he never gets that. He never gets invited out of his office to go and stand yeah, right. with the team and not just me but my team and – and be part of the conversation and, and interact with the, the materials in a different way. And Is that and because s- people assume he's just too busy? Exactly. Yeah, right. So your point And that's actually what he wants to do is get out there and, yeah. Exactly, you know. And so this assumption that people are too busy, we sometimes make assumptions about, well, we have to really do it in his office, otherwise we're going to ask him to move a long way or go travel or do whatever. I've found the opposite. I've found, you know, mm. wherever possible. And again, we're talking about big stuff, you know, so um, this is not just small decision things, mm. which I would meet him in his office for. But if I'm trying to get something big to happen, um, I'll try and take him out of context. I'll try and expose him to that information in a different way, um, have a have a 
more relaxed or informal experience, it'll be memorable. It'll be something that he'll walk away from and go, that was a good meeting, you know, or that was an interesting way of engaging this. And I think to me... I love what that team is doing over there, yeah. You know, it leaves a good impression and it, and it leaves an impression of, of people that are trying to be different as well. So these are things that I think raise things up the priority list and get them to remember you and your work and then when you've got something to ask for, you know more often than not, you are on the priority list, will get the meeting, will be listened to and more, you know, get the decision that you're hoping for more often than not. And so I think that's, it's sort of a, it's a journey. It's not just one thing, you know, it's not like you can just wave your hands in the air and get the attention of important people that are time poor. It's you got to build a relationship and these are things that I think you can do in that relationship that can shape it in a way that, that, that um, you know, helps to influence them to a greater extent. Awesome. Um, are there any other tips you want to offer on managing up or managing change at that level that we haven't already discussed? So I think it's been quite comprehensive. Um, look, I think maybe um, you know one last one is is also delegating up. Um, you know, leaders constantly get taught to delegate down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they get taught or leaders get taught to be leaders and they forget how to be followers and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I've, I've found one of the most successful things to get attention, respect and credibility with my boss and his boss in every organisation I've worked in is delegating up, being really good at knowing when the time is that this particular task or action is for them but doing it in a way like I mentioned before where I just don't feed up a problem or just don't throw a hot potato or hey there's a whole really really hard thing that you've got to do and here it is good luck you know I give it to them on a platter you know I try and predict what they need I understand them well I know them well I I, I give them a, a plan and these are the people maybe we should talk to and here's some different approaches we could use and you know, mm. here's the outcome that we're trying to achieve and here's some papers you could use to try and do it and here's some et cetera, et cetera. Like almost, you know, going above and beyond with not just here's something I need you to do but here's all the stuff that you're going to need to do it, you know, mm-hmm. and happy if you change it, lose it, whatever you want to do. Um, so that to me is, is again, you know, delegating up is another great um, task which leaders respect. They respect subordinates and staff that come to them in that way awesome i love it and so you're a dad you've got two young kids um i also wanted to ask you because your wife is in a senior professional role as well how you manage your childcare responsibilities and your responsibilities at home whilst maintaining this high-powered job um and also working in with your wife who has a high-powered job too mm. I don't think of my job as high-powered. I try not to. It definitely is. Um, look, we um, at worst share 50-50 and at best lately I've been the 70 in, and my wife's been the 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because for a number of years when our kids were younger and when they were born and mm. breastfeeding and my wife took a lot of time off work. Yep. And so – in recent times, I feel like I've been paying that back. Yeah. And 
and um, and my wife, my career really, you know, went through a really good patch while my wife was at home. Yeah. Not getting super and mm. off work and in between jobs and all that sort of and thing. Not getting promoted. Not getting and, yeah. promoted, not accelerating her career and was very frustrated with that, by the way. You know, she's, she's career oriented and, and she really missed work. Uh, loved our kids but missed work. Yeah. And so... Um, at that stage, you know, my career was going really well and then she got back into the workforce and it took her a number of years to kind of, you know, get momentum again and she's really got that momentum again. How many years did it take for that momentum to pick up? Um, oh, look, I think at least at least two or three to really That's kind a of, long time. Yeah, yeah, you know, to really get back in the groove and then since then it really took off and whilst that happened I thought, right, this is my time. <laughs> we mm. were probably 50-50 managing things mm-hmm. together, everything, house, family, food, cooking, the whole thing. We're, we're very good in that regard, um, sharing the load. But more recently, I think it would be fair to say um, I've been sharing much more of the load and her. she's been very much more career-focused and yep. that's been cool, you know. And uh, to me this is throughout a long marriage and relationship, these are the – ebbs and flows that you go through and um, and the sacrifices and trade-offs that you make as a partnership and for us that's worked really well. Cool. And so what are some of the um, things that you do to get that 70%? Like do you leave work early? Do you work flexibly? Mm-hmm. I do all of those things. So, um, yes, I look, I'm in both of my last jobs, both in corporates at Telstra and Australia Post, they've had great flexible working practices and I've Certainly taken do. full advantage of it, you know. And I think my normal day is arriving at work on average, you know, 8.30 um, and finishing at 4.30. Um, I'll typically pick up my kids mm-hmm. um, at daycare and school or after school care or yep. whatever um, and go and spend time with my kids and, and do dinner um, with them before and I, I do still log back on to work often, mm-hmm. um, if not most nights. Um, after that all happens and they go to yeah. bed, you know. So for me, I balance spending time with my family, with doing still reasonable amount of hours, um, but but doing it in a way that's flexible and that to me gives me that sense of balance and and um, I'm not missing out, you know, and spending time with my family. Mm. And, um, and yeah, I run uh, in the mornings at 4.30, 5 o'clock oh, in the mornings. Um, Jesus Christ. And so <laughs> that's the only time I can find to do exercise that I've found. And so I've just taught myself to just do that. And so, yeah, I've literally trained – I've said to my wife recently that I trained for a marathon for the last nine months pretty much before all of them woke up every day. So I usually get home and everyone's still asleep. So I pretty much did that whole thing. Whilst everyone was asleep. <laughs> oh my god! So <laughs> I just, I feel so lazy because I um just I started a new contract recently, and uh, my new boss is an early starter. Whereas my previous uh, project sponsor was based in Southeast Asia, so she would come online, you know, at like eleven a.m. Australian time, and I would go to the gym in the morning and get to work maybe nine nine fifteen, and then I would stay later because. Uh, my sponsor was online later, so that was kind of, you know, if I needed to work extra hours, that that was fine. But now I'm getting into the office at about 8.30, quarter past eight, yeah. So I've had to move my 6.45 exercise class back to 6 a.m. and I'm getting up at quarter past five and I'm like, ooh. And now you're getting up at 4.30 
and then you go into work and then you're working and then you're picking up your kids and doing all of that stuff and then working again. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, and did you get a good time in the marathon? I forgot to ask you at the beginning. Um, I did. I, I was very happy um, with my time. I, my goal was under three hours and 15 minutes and I got three hours and 13 minutes. So I and achieved my goal. And this is the full marathon. Full marathon. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, congratulations. That's a huge achievement because I remember um, it was last year when we were working together at Post, you were talking about how you decided to do a marathon and you started right. training and now you've done it. Well, I've you, done two. You've done one, it, yeah. Yeah, I did one earlier in the year. Was and that then, the Great Ocean Road one? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well done. Congratulations. Yeah. And especially to do that with all of the other stuff you've got going on. I mean, that's... Yeah, but I feel like it fuels the other stuff, you know. And again, you, the point you're making about balance and flexibility and juggling family and work and whatever it's funny like you know they always say the busy people good people to if you want something done give it to a busy person yeah but you know i feel like i'm more able to be busy when i've got the most balance in my life mm. you know so when my family is happy when my work is going well and i'm doing what i feel like i i'm adding the value i, I need to add and i'm healthy you know they're mm. for me the three things that kind of need to happen to make me feel like things are good. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've i been happy um, with the first two for some time, but starting the running thing has been really filled a, a bit of a gap for me, you know, the big goal there with my fitness. It doesn't have to be a marathon, but anything that you do, you know, I feel like that everyone talks about it. Yeah, you know, you should always try and be able to do some running. right? But it really, really is true for me, you know. I just... Mm. I just find that that is such a leveller, you know, and, and it glues everything else together and makes me feel good and I have more energy, I'm less tired, all that sort of stuff. Like That's a good point. Like I've been – this year, for the first year of my life, I've gotten into the habit of exercising before work. I usually used to do it after work and you run that risk of going, oh, I'm tired, oh, I had to work a bit late, mm, I won't go. Whereas when you do it in the morning, it's done and dusted. You can work late, right. you can come home and be tired and completely veg out if you want to. Um, but yeah, I found, um, I either go to the gym and now that, you know, it's not as dark in the mornings, um, I'm going for a walk along the beach and it does give you more energy throughout the day. I don't get tired at three o'clock. Um, I've got better mental clarity, even though I've gotten up earlier, but I'm also going to bed earlier. So mm. I'm turning into a bit of a nana, but I'm okay with that. Yeah, good um, but it does, it does make you feel better. And I think for us, when we do desk jobs, where we sit down all mm -hmm. day and we're sitting down in meetings, like if you then sit down when you're at home and you you know you don't get fresh air all day because you're in an office and you're not you know I mean you go for a walk along the beach you feel great afterwards even if you wake up feeling like crap exactly <sighs> um another thing I wanted to ask you is as a man who is utilizing the fantastic flexible working policies of Australia Post and Telstra before that have you ever experienced any discrimination or you know microaggression type comments for doing that Mm, that's a good question. Um, look, I've been pretty fortunate, I'll say, but I did have one um, one negative experience. Um, but look, I, I, I don't want to overshadow um, everything. I, I think corporate organisations more often than not now have incredibly supportive cultures and flexible working. Mm. And I think there but is. we've been very lucky in the organisations we've been working at lately. I, I feel like 
it's quite privileged and some organisations are not there yet. Well, yeah, I, I can't speak for that because, I again, that hasn't been my, mm. my experience. I, I mean, I've working in those two large organisations and in a medium organisation before that, it was, it was similar in that sense. I think what I, my point was going to be, though, what I do see, even in those very flexible mm. organisations, I see men who are holding themselves back. Um, who are making excuses that my my job's too busy or I'm you know can't really do it even though it's flexible or that people around them are um, judgmental of, of that situation when in fact it isn't the case. So they're not giving themselves permission to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So you know I still see that happening. I've seen it happen in my own teams. You know people who have made those comments and I'm like, well, who who is Who's doing that? Yeah, for who's you? saying that to you? Yeah, who's telling it's you not you can't me. do it? It's just you're telling yourself that. It's just that, yeah, that voice in your head. That's right. And I think part of that is a social norm that maybe it's going to take a while to iron out with men who have that expectation of themselves. And to be frank with you, I have had that expectation of myself. I've yep. had to iron that out in my life as well. I grew up, you know, with that idea that, you know, men provide, yada, yada, you know. And so it's taken time to, um, um, adjust, readjust my own sense of identity and and um, and my role, um, mm. and and also to realize um, the importance of equality in that my wife's job and my wife's role is just as important as mine. Doesn't matter what it is or how much you earn, by the way, and that's another one. You know, because mm. you know men still earn more than women, and as a result, there's this financial kind of driver that everyone's yeah. like, well, because you're earning more, I guess you can probably be the one that stays and at work more. And childcare is so expensive that often people say, well, the cost of childcare would completely negate my wage, so what's the point even? And yep. and Which is, you know, it's a valid argument, but, I, yeah, it does push women kind of to not go back into the workforce and not pursue careers. That's true. And so I think it's up to in, – in that situation, I really think it's up to men to, to stop and realise that no matter what you're being paid, that, that – um, both of your careers are important. Mm. You know, I've done things with my wife like, you know, during um, during the time she had off with our kids, um, I contributed half of my super into her super fund. Yes. So that her super wouldn't yeah, stop. because why should she not have any super because she's making yeah. this huge sacrifice to raise children and have children. Yeah, and I mean, we're not planning on divorcing, I hope, any time in our lives. But nevertheless, it was a symbolic thing to say that just because I'm at work, I'm doing this for us, mm. that doesn't mean you, your career and your super stops dead, you know, like we'll do everything we can to sort of keep that equal. Um, you know, we did silly things like, you know, even our kids are named, um, one child's named after my last name, one child's la- named after my wife's last name because, you know, and my wife didn't take my name as a as a when we got married and, and mm. such things. It's just because, again, we just believe in equality, you know. Um, my, just because you're marrying me doesn't mean you have to take my name. I mean, I know people do this and that's, that's fine. A, that and is that's another choice, um, instance where people can be really forward thinking but then when it comes to marriage and children they're like, oh, no, they all have to have the same name or I'm, a, I'm not going to take my husband's name but obviously the children will have his name and it gets a bit weird it's and a bit weird. contradictory. Um, my brother-in-law actually took our family name when he married my sister. So he became a Redman. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my nephew was born before the wedding and he was uh, his last name was Redman because it's like, oh, well, we're getting married and, you know, mm-hmm. I'll change my name so he can have the Redman name. But he said um, 
they were living in the inner west, like Newtown area in Sydney, which is, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's a bit like inner city Melbourne. Um, it's quite progressive and, and liberal thinking, but uh, they relocated to Adelaide after their wedding and he went into the Centrelink in there to do the name change thing and saying, oh, I got married, I'm changing my name. And they were like, what? <laughs> and they didn't know how to handle his request. And he ended up saying, so if I was a woman and I came in and said that I got married and changed my name, what process would you follow? And they said, oh, well, we would do X, Y, Z. And he's like, so can you do that for me? And they were like, okay. But they just were, they didn't know how to deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, is it that weird? Mm. Is it? I mean, we all thought it was great. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is great. And, you know, these sorts of things I think are just signs of, of trying to change the conversation and change the norms, you know, um, challenge the norms if you if you like. I mean, I'm always... Always like that sort of stuff, but um, mm. but even just in the basics of, of just life and managing two careers and all that sort of thing, we're no different to anybody else. But I just think um, that it does come down to respecting one another's career equally. You know, bottom yep. line, um, my job, my sex is no more important mm. or less than anyone else's or my wife's, <laughs> for that matter. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> And I think starting with that premise always puts you in a good headspace to make good decisions about how you balance and manage things together. Awesome. Well, I think that just about does this podcast. Um, that's been amazing. Thank you so much, Daryl, for coming on Custody to Come View. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's my pleasure. <laughs>